Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon, and uh, I'm thrilled to also have with us today Motusi Turner, who uh, was uh, an Oxbridge, that is Oxford and Cambridge graduate, who is an expert, uh, a budding expert. I think he might be too too modest to classify himself as an expert, but we're going to call him an expert today on China Lesotho relations. Uh, Motusi did his undergraduate degree at Cambridge in studying Sino Lesotho relations, and now we're going to talk about his thesis that he submitted last year to. To, or actually, in 2011, at Oxford on uh, Lesotho, uh, on immigrate, Chinese immigration to Lesotho, and the reason why we're bringing this up today is because this is one of these countries that we just don't focus enough on, and it also represents a very important trend in the question of immigration. So, uh, Motusi, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Wonderful, and it's also worth noting that uh, uh, Motusi now is actually working for a uh, private analysis, an, a private analysis firm in uh, private consultancy in Oxford as well. So we'll uh, let's get started with that. Hey, Cobus, before we kind of dive into our three topics, which I'll get into, let's first kind of revisit uh, last week's show when we talked about uh, a letter that was posted on Professor Deborah Browdergim's blog, uh, the China Real Story blog, and it was written by. KF, who was a, a young man who said his father, you know, lived in I think it was Malawi for 27 years, and talked really eloquently about the labor、uh, situation among Chinese and Africans in there. And then one of the key points that we wanted to clarify was that KF. Is actually not Chinese, but he's from Taiwan. Now, to a lot of people, that may be a very subtle difference, but in fact, you know, if you know anything about China-Taiwan relationship, it's extremely sensitive, and that's one point that he did ask us to clarify, and we just wanted to make sure that the record was in fact correct.、Uh, and、uh, am I am I missing anything else、uh, from from the discussion that we had、uh, with KF? When I,、um, you know, we had a very interesting discussion with him on our Facebook page,、um, and one of the、uh, the points was, you know, kind of I refer to his family firm's、um, relationship with their workers as paternalistic, and I think I might have been a little like stepping a little fast there. Term、um, and you know, kind of what I would rather was was meaning meaning was um, that um, foreign employees in Africa frequently. Intimate knowledge of their workers' li- daily lives—one that isn't allowed for in in the kind of traditional liberal kind of Western ideas of of、um, employer-employee relations. So yeah, just just you know, I just like to add that little bit of nuance. Okay, so it was a fascinating discussion. Unfortunately,、uh, he wanted to kind of preserve some type of a little bit of anonymity, and he's not comfortable coming on the show because we would have loved to have we'd love to have KF on the show to talk about those experiences because there was a lot of discussion around. His post on on Deborah Browdergim's blog,、uh, but yet we will continue to keep this conversation going with him, and then share any updates with you as we get them. Okay, so as promised, three topics today. We're going to talk about, as I mentioned at the top of the show,、uh, Lesotho, Lesotho, and and the question of immigration and Chinese migrants and supermarkets in Lesotho, and what it represents as something for the broader continent.、Uh, then we're going to move to, right across the border to South Africa. Where a new academic report came out, and which basically is is kind of conflicting with the narrative that Chinese、uh, textile imports are are destroying jobs, and in fact,、uh, 
uh, this academic report says the government and their policies are actually responsible for it. So we're going to get Kobus's and, uh, and Mutusi's take on that. And finally, we're going to end uh, on a really on a down note, actually, on the question of Bobby. Uh, Bobby is a Togolese Chinese child uh, who's in Zhejiang province in China, and he's been abandoned by pretty much everybody. And, and this is the question that's really confronting both China and Africa, this question of racial identity. And we're going to run into this more and more as Chinese and Africans build families together. Some of those families will work out. And in the case of Bobby's parents, they won't. So we'll kind of bring you up to date on Bobby and also talk about the question of racial identity. Okay, let's go right into to Lesotho and, uh, and this question. And the people may be kind of flipping on to, uh, to Google right now. Uh, kind of looking up Wikipedia on what where actually Lesotho is. So before we get started in the conversation, uh, and I'm going to really turn to Matusi on this, I'm going to give just a, a little bit of a background. There's about 2 million people. Uh, it's geographically the size of, think about Belgium or Taiwan. So it's not a small place, but not a huge place. It's entirely surrounded by South Africa. And it's one of these kind of uh, you know, very unique situations where it's entirely landlocked by another country. Uh, it's classified as, as a least developed country by the UN, which makes it one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, there's also a tragedy that's going on there, too, in that about one out of four and just about 23.4% of the entire population is HIV positive. So they're really confronting a very serious HIV issue. Now, this is where I'm going to start turning to, to Mutusi because, you know, there's no way to precisely count exactly how many Chinese are there. Uh, but they say the, the estimates are between five and, and 20,000 people. The reason why we're bringing up this today is because uh, in the past few weeks, we've been hearing more and more reports, uh, particularly out of Lesotho media, that are becoming, you know, a new word, sinophobic, xenophobic, uh, hostile to Chinese merchants. And there's this growing tension that's happening. So kind of paint us the picture of who are the Chinese in Lesotho and why is it important but also, how do they interact with the local population based on your time, your upbringing? Because I think it's worth mentioning as well that you are a descendant of Lesotho parents. You were raised in Lesotho, and you have actually done some academic research. So I've thrown a whole lot at you. Get started. Just tell us a little bit about Sino's Lesotho relations. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Eric. Um, the first important thing to know about the Chinese in Lesotho is that they've been there uh, in in reasonably large numbers um, when uh, Taiwan established um, diplomatic relations with Lesotho. And at that time, the population of Chinese people, as we call them in Lesotho, were actually mostly Taiwanese. Um, and this was part of Taiwan's attempt to uh, win friendships with newly independent African states. And this was part of its uh, desire to kind of assert its independence from mainland China, um, and at this time, obviously, mainland China was still in diplomatic political isolation. So what you had was uh, Taiwanese coming over to Lesotho as part of agricultural assistance project organized and funded by the Taiwanese government. Um, and then as time went on, um, we had in Lesotho a government that was um, that realized that, uh, uh, that probably the best way for the country's economy to develop beyond uh, sending migrant workers to the mines in South Africa, which had been the kind of uh, major pillar of the Lesotho economy, was to invite Taiwanese investors, to, well, foreign investors generally, to come and set up 
their businesses in Lesotho. And uh, the Brenthurst Foundation have done a very good paper on um, the, the the way that the Taiwanese became involved in setting up the textile industry in Lesotho, which today is the number one private investor in the country. Um, and so let me let me so, just stop you before you go on. Is is Lesotho one of where do their diplomatic relations currently lie with Taiwan or with China? So at the moment, it's uh, they their relations with. Are with China, and okay. in a so, sense, they're a very good example of a country in Africa that has yo-yoed between the two and sort of played one off against the other. So they started off with relations with Taiwan just after independence. Then, in 1983, they switched back to China. Then um, there was a coup in Lesotho, which meant that there was a new government, and also, um, you know, there was a lot of negative feeling towards China about the way that they cracked down in Tiananmen Square. And there's also a desire to move away from Taiwan because they were supporting the apartheid regime in um, South Africa. So then we had uh, a switch back over to mainland China in 1994. Okay. So yeah. that, so today, when we look at the situation in Lesotho, and this is, again, why it's interesting, is we're seeing growing tensions between this, this population of immigrants who today, correct me if I'm wrong, um, are predominantly from mainland China. They are predominantly low-end workers, so the low-wage workers. So per, presumably the Taiwanese who came over in the 80s uh, were professional class. Uh, and again, I am, I'm way out on the ledge here because I don't really understand it, so I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and then by now today, we're seeing, as you write and you wrote in your, your dissertation or your master's thesis, um, the Fujianese and the Fujianese are usually the leading edge of, of Chinese immigration. They are oftentimes the most adventurous, the first to go into another country. Um, and so today the, the immigration situation is what? Right. So um, what we have since the arrival of the Taiwanese is basically waves of Chinese migration. So when Taiwan became more economically developed, a lot of Taiwanese went back to Taiwan. There was also a period of very strong anti-Chinese sentiment in Lesotho, which I think drove a lot of the Taiwanese away. Um, and the remaining factories in, in Lesotho wanted to employ Chinese staff, but they couldn't get any from Chinese-speaking staff, but they couldn't get any from Taiwan. So they turned to mainland China. And um, they employed a large number from Shanghai, um, and in turn, those Shanghainese managers brought with them a lot of uh, employees from Fujian. And um, due to kind of the, the network nature of the, these Fujianese communities, now have just had a huge wave of, well, comparatively, it's been a, a country of out-migration for such a long time. We have a huge wave of immigration from Fujian. Um, and these, the question of why people emigrate from Fujian is an interesting one. And um, my previous uh, supervisor, Dr. Frank Pika, um, wrote an interesting paper about why people leave Fujian. And um, basically, Fujian is a is a province of China that is uh, it is on the coast and it's kind of penned in by mountains, and it has what many people have described as a culture of migration where the opportunities in Fujian have for centuries since the Tang Dynasty been really geared towards out-migration. Um, and so, so there's a history of, of out-migration, first of all. Um, and uh, the kind of networks that they've built up uh, through time with the Taiwanese investors in the city, then later the Shanghainese uh, investors, means that 
there's actually a lot of knowledge already existing about Lesotho amongst these traders. And um, they are kind of moving from one part of the global periphery from Fujian to Lesotho. And you would wonder why would they move to Lesotho? But it's all because they have limited but some prior knowledge of Lesotho, mostly through family members. Yeah, and, and of course, if uh, if you're from the United States and you've been to New York's Chinatown, well, then you're familiar with the Fujianese immigrant community because that is predominantly a Fujianese, or traditionally it's been a Fujianese community, and that's very much the case in, in many parts of the world as well. But why, you know, and Kobus, I'm going to get to you in a quick second, but my, my question is, why the hell would anybody want to go to Lesotho? I mean, again, one out of four people is HIV positive. There's no natural resources that are there. It's one of the poorest countries in the world, so there's no natural middle class or even, you know, anybody to, to buy, to, to, you know, to get rich, if you will, or to, to even have the opportunity to get rich, it's not an obvious first choice. That's right. Um, and in many cases, Lesotho is, the, is kind of a first stepping stone on a broader trajectory of migration. Um, so many of the Fujianese uh, migrants that I spoke to in Lesotho said that if they could have done, they would have moved directly to South Africa, but they opted to move to Lesotho, A, because they had family members already there and who knew the situation, and B, because Lesotho's uh, immigration controls are, frankly, much more lax than um, South Africa's. And if, they, if you can s- somehow find your way to Lesotho as a tourist, um, it's very easy to stay just by bribing officials. There are a lot of people who are obviously Chinese who have Lesotho passports that have been obtained through uh, kind of dubious means. Um, so, so really, um, a lot of these migrants don't plan to stay in Lesotho forever. In fact, I think the, ma- the overwhelming majority would move on if they could. But um, what's interesting is that they perceive uh, the, the the profitability of Lesotho and the profitability of these tiny kind of towns in the mountains where no one has ever set up a shop. They they see those places and they see an opportunity that no one else has been able to see. Um, and I can explain maybe in a bit uh, the ways that they are able to to be successful in those in mm-hmm. those environments. Well, let's. Yeah, I want to get back to that, Kobus. I want to come to you now because a couple of the points that Motusi brought up are, are, are some of the themes that we've been talking about for quite some time. Uh, you know, technically, it's not permissible for uh, Chinese to own businesses. Foreigners are not, all, uh, according to uh, Lusutu law, are not allowed to own their own retail establishments. But yet. Uh, there is a, a, a perception that because Lesotho wants to maintain favorable relationships with the with the Chinese government, because they want to be open for Chinese investment, they do not crack down on this law. Uh, now, at the same time, this is starting to spark uh, some tension within the community that the Chinese are selling. Again, this is going to sound very familiar to anybody who's been listening to this podcast for a while. Uh, subquality uh, food. Uh, they are undercutting local competitions. The local retailers are complaining that they can't compete. Um, so this is this is the same thing we've seen in Malawi, in Namibia, and in Ghana, and elsewhere. So what, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see how in Lesotho, what's also happening is it's not only normal, you know, kind of general, uh, you know, kind of Lesotho citizens who are complaining. It's been taken up by a few of the local media, media figures, um, and they, there's been some kind of uh, anti-Chinese preaching and, you know, and um, and uh, 
kind of agitation kind of from the local radio stations. So that I think is, you know, in from, from an African perspective, that sounds worrying, um, you know, and, and the, 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 the way that it's been, that it's kind of been pushed by, by certain kind of central figures within, you know, cause kind of semi celebrities within the city that, that I think is, is, well, it struck me as new. Now, when you say worrying from an African perspective, are you saying, be, I mean, when, when, when I hear racist, xenophobic talk and, and Motusi, Come into this conversation anytime. When I hear when when I hear you talk about racist, xenophobic talk on the radio, the first place that comes to mind is the the Hutu you know broadcast in Rwanda in 1994. Um, is that exactly, what, are you exactly. is that what you're what you're trying to dig up, or is there something else? No, I mean that that is that is the first thing that comes to mind. You know, I, I'm not I'm not equating the two cases because I think Rwanda has uh, had its own very specific kind of history of that, and I'm not saying it's the same situation. It's just it is worrying, okay. you know, kind of particularly particularly in a country where there where there's such high levels of unemployment, where people have so little to do, you know, kind of and and you know and people are there's such high levels of resentment. I think I think that is a problematic. Okay, so. You know, yeah. Mutusi, Kobus brought up a very good point here, and this is this has been my frustration from the point of view of looking at this question of anger towards retailers. So, uh, the Chinese uh, are oftentimes underselling competitors. That is bad news for the competitors, but it is excellent news for the consumer. And in a country as poor as Lesotho is, having lower cost goods and having more goods seems like it's a good thing. So would public opinion in, in a place like Lesotho actually be on the side of the Chinese who are providing a service at lower cost where that's benefiting very, very poor consumers? Or is it with the shop owners? Um, that's an interesting question. And what you have is actually, on the one hand, just um, blatant, really uncalculated xenophobia. And on the other hand, you have an increasing reliance and dependence on the services provided by the Chinese uh, retailers. Um, and one thing that I would just want to come back on is um, I don't think that the reason that the Lesotho government hasn't cracked down on the Chinese retailers until now is because of their desire to um, kind of uh, appease the Chinese mm -hmm. government in some way. Because actually these migrants have no affiliation with the Chinese government really at all and they complain about the fact that they receive no support whatsoever from the Chinese embassy in Lesotho um, and if you think about it in their own country in Fujian these 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 migrants I mean there's a huge question of internal migration in China as well and what rights do these poor rural migrants have and the answer is basically none so this the story is the same when they come to Africa their government still really grants them no rights and no um no no privileges and actually what in my opinion what i think has um has protected these retailers until now is just corruption they've basically just bribed um government officials or um you know they they put up very elaborate fronts for example there is a ban on um on foreigners owning premises i think of less than a thousand square meters but uh, the Fujianese uh, circumvent this by employing local people to hold the deed and to appear when the regulators come to check on them. And then they just disappear and the Chinese owner will run the business for the rest of the time. Yeah. So I think it's very important. And um, the anti-Chinese sentiment is is 
very serious. And um, and uh, uh, a recent paper by the Brenthurst Foundation Africa, in their words, which I think is on your website, mm-hmm. um, said that Lesotho was uh, the country where Chinese people felt the least safe. Um, and from my from my interactions with Chinese people in Lesotho, they they are the subjects of attacks very very frequently. And one one poor guy had been attacked eight times in the last two months, and five out of those eight times were in broad daylight. So there's just no. I mean, they feel very unsafe. And if you look at the discussions um, between between um, you know prospective migrants and the the people in the on the ground in Lesotho, you see them. They don't go out um, alone, even during the daytime. Um, a lot of their premises are guarded by armed guards, so it is a very serious issue. And it had the reason. The reason people take it, the reason we should take it very seriously, is because um, Lesotho has a history of, of, of xenophobic attacks. And in 1991, there was a, a, a period of huge civil unrest caused by the murder by a shopkeeper, shopkeeper's guard of a local woman who had been accused of shoplifting. And her murder basically sparked this wave of unrest in 1991. And um, that just caused a, a, a period of total anarchy in the country. And there was looting and about, I think about 63 people were murdered. Um, and a lot, of Chinese, a lot of Chinese and foreign investors fled the country. A lot of South African investors fled the country. So it has serious consequences. You know, Kobus, it's so interesting to hear Motusi kind of describe the situation in Lesotho because it it so closely resembles the discussions that we've had uh, looking at other countries in Africa when is, you know, clearly there's this emerging tension uh, that is that between retailers uh, and there's a cultural tensions that exist. What's difficult to ascertain, and I'd like to hear your final thoughts on this, is how much does this represent a trend that, you know, it's making headlines, but does that necessarily mean that that is a the direction that you know on the ground sino-african relations are going in not the government to government we're talking people to people here or do we look at these as isolated dots on a bigger on a bigger graph yeah no i I think one of the problems with sino-african relations on the ground is that there's so so few shared spaces there's so few you know kind of shared uh, ways to communicate um between africans and chinese um and i don't think it's only you know frequently i think africans in also on our webpage lots of our african members frequently blame the chinese for that and saying oh they should learn local languages and it's you know why don't they why don't they want to communicate with africans i think it's more complicated than that i think there's there are blocks on both sides um and you know kind of and there's also this it's what's surprising for me is that there's all of this resentment and all of this um you know kind of anger about chinese business um business practices but these business practices work so um actually i wanted to ask Mutusi before we step off this this topic i wonder if you could just lay out what what some of the tactics are that the fujianese use to actually make a profit in this area where no one else could even you know, attempt to make a profit. And why do you think the Africans are not taking, you know, kind of taking, you know, kind of tips from them and like, and like emulating their business practices? Mm, Okay, well, I'll answer your second question first. I think the Chinese are very secretive about these practices. um, And they certainly don't ever employ local Basutu in positions where they would be able to learn really the secrets of the trade. So 
that's there's very little skills transfer from that point of view. But really, the key to the Fujianese success is the the fact that they really work through networks. So they transplant the networks that they have, which are often family networks, from Fujian to Lesotho. Um, and in, once they're in Lesotho, they kind of uh, associate themselves with um, with organizations like the Fuqing Association for Chinese Enterprises. Um, and these societies provide loans uh, for new arrivals, and they also provide insurance, which can be borrowed, uh, which can be obtained, you know, uh, for quite a lot of uh, expense. But um, the idea is that the new arrival will set up his shop, run it for a while, A, pay back the... Um, the migration agent or snakehead who brought them to Lesotho, be um, pay back the local association who probably paid for them to obtain the premises and uh, kind of footed them for their first load of stock. Then they have um, a, 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 a range of other strategies, including transporting their goods collectively, because Given that Lesotho is an extremely mountainous country with very poor road infrastructure, the, one of the main barriers to re- setting up shops in the highlands has been the fact that the transportation costs are very high. So they'll transport collectively and they'll also bulk buy. So groups of Fujianese traders who on their own would certainly lose money if they bought individually for their shops will bulk buy and they'll keep goods on their premises for a very long time uh, thereby further um, cutting costs. And because they're being supported by these local associations, they can afford to undersell local competitors for a period of time. And then when the local competitor looks shaky, you know, maybe the cousin of that Fujian's shop owner will come in and talk to the local shop owner and say, look, you just keep the deed, I'll run your shop. And, um, And that way they establish a kind of and once they've established this monopoly, they can hike up their prices because the local village has become dependent on yeah, this is, These are classic Chinese business practices all over the world. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it's interesting. You, everything that you were describing uh, mirrored uh, some of the experiences that I had in the DRC. And if you go to the ChinaAfricaProject.com website and look for Meet Mr. Chen, I actually profile the networks. Uh, that Mr. That Mr. Chen, who was a shop owner in Kinshasa, used, and it's it's almost word for word exactly as Motusi described it. So um, we're going to have to move on from there. This is an absolutely fascinating conversation, in part because in tiny little little Lesotho, you're seeing so many of the big trends that are affecting Sino-African relations as whole. But we're not going to go very far now. We're actually just going to cross the border uh, into into South Africa, where it's been you know almost you know, accepted common wisdom that, you know, the Chinese are destroying South Africa's textile industry. And the textile industry is very, very important. Uh, It's one of the most vibrant in all of Africa. And it's become just accepted wisdom that low-cost Chinese imports are undermining the domestic uh, industry. Uh, Two professors from the University of Cape Town now have come out and said that's actually not the case. Professor Nicoli Natras and Jeremy Seekings, both of of University of Cape Town, uh, said in, in the latest CDE focus that came out in January that actually the government and the unions are to blame. Cobus, um, is this going to be accepted to challenge that commonly held wisdom about the Chinese? 
I think you know, kind of part of part of what they wanted to do with this, this um, report is to try and, and widen the focus and to add nuance to this to the discussion. So, what you need to understand is that um, the the government and the unions are pushing South, the South African garment industry, which is one of the most labour intensive industries in South Africa, to move a little bit up the the value chain and to to move towards more capital intensive and more kind of high fashion, um, you know, kind of products. Um, the, the companies um, that are run by Taiwanese and Chinese immigrants um, in, in a town called Newcastle in, in the rural part of South Africa, that's actually right across the border, close to, to Lesotho, um, they provide very low-end um, clothing for, for, the, for a, a, a you know, very poor market in South Africa. Um, and they are very, very labor-intensive. Um, but they can't, because they work on such small profit margins, they can't afford to pay the minimum wage. Um, and there's been more and more pressure on them to pay the minimum wage, um, which will, will, will probably kind of drive most of those, um, those companies out of business. So um, the, uh, these two academics were saying that, um, you know, you know they, 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 they're adding, they're looking at the other side of the coin. On the one hand, the government is insisting on on decent work, quote unquote, you know, kind of saying that that you know, kind of minimum wages need to be respected, and um, obviously the unions are pushing for that as well. They are saying that these, that both the government and the unions are tend to be focused in the in the the urban areas in South Africa, and they they are out of touch with with the realities of these rural factories. And in the process of pushing for minimum wage, they are going to wipe out thousands and thousands of jobs um, that are frequently, in the, in the case of these rural areas, the only jobs available. Yeah, but you know, pushing for minimum wages is something that unions all over the world do. The United States is known for this as well. The United States unions, the AFL-CIO in particular, um, you know, have said they want to put trade sanctions on China for the fact that it doesn't maintain minimum wage laws or respect them. So it's not just South Africa. This is a first world, industrialized world challenge to China, not you know, all over the world. Does do they have? I mean, it seems like South Africa has an established law to protect workers, and so for them not to enforce this law. Uh, would be irresponsible. That's the one side. The other side is that this idea that South Africa is supposed to move into a high skill, high fashion part of the of of the, the fashion industry. South Africa isn't Italy. You know, kind of we don't have highly skilled seamstresses around every corner. There are no high skills to move into a high skilled, you know, kind of economy. Um, that's the one problem. The other problem is that the government has subsidies and they, they tend to push and support and, you know, kind of logistically support certain kind of companies. Now, these companies tend to be very big and they're also some of them are actually co-owned by the very unions that are also pushing for this, for this minimum wage, which means that there is a perception particularly, and you see that very much from the Chinese entrepreneurs, that the minimum wage isn't really the issue. The minimum wage is is a tool in, in order to push smaller competitors out of the market and to concentrate the market, uh, you know, under a few big monopolistic companies that are both supported by both the unions and the government. You know, Matusi, I'm missing something here, and I seem to be um, I mean, Cobus, I think, agrees with me on this. We've talked about it a number of times. But, you know, maybe it's because I'm American. And in the United States, we go to Walmart and we go to Target and, you know, where, you know, all the crap of the world that's made in China comes at, you know, for next to nothing. 
Um, I mean, the prices are just so absurdly low, and we've become addicted to these low prices. Um, we're used to going into the supermarket and buying lettuce that is picked by illegal labor that is not protected by American labor law, but we will not pay more for it. So this idea of focusing on the consumer rather than the producer seems to be much more of an American thing because all I keep thinking about is as these Chinese shops, and this is the same as in Lesotho, and it's the same all throughout Africa, um, they're injecting a level of competition that may not be there, and they're also lowering prices for people. Why isn't there this upsurge, in your opinion, in South Africa and other places of saying this is good for us to have lower prices? Yeah, it's a question. It, it's true that um, that you know the lower end of the market is very important in Africa because certainly consumers don't have as much money as as uh, we do here in the West or in Europe and America. Um, but another side of the coin is the fact that if you know if the wage minimum wage was to be enforced very strictly, then there'd be no doubt that these companies, which are very footloose, I mean the textile industry is very 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 footloose, would just up and leave. Yeah. And those people who were employed, um, you know, in the in the kind of cheap manufacture manufacturing jobs, uh, would be unemployed. And it's not like they have the skills needed to go into more high end production. Um, and, you know, there's a question of Lesotho's comparative advantage um, because it doesn't enforce minimum wage so strictly. Um, and, you know, even Lesotho is having problems with competitiveness from countries in Southeast Asia like Vietnam, which uh, can, you know, produce things for next to nothing. So it's a question of it's a question of the uh, the need for low cost products in South Africa. And the, the, I think you raise a good point asking why people aren't more supportive. Because to be frank, the local people in in South Africa are are benefiting from the the, the low cost of the, these garments. But at the same time, you know, ideally we all want minimum wage to be enforced, and we all want uh, everyone to kind of have a, a high high minimum standard of living. But the reality of the global system is such that if if they enforce it very strictly, then these companies will just up and leave, and South Africa will probably be at a disadvantage, or oh. those people will be at a disadvantage. Okay, yeah. so Cobus then... I, I completely... Yeah, so sorry to, to interrupt you. Um, another issue I think that, that is involved here is that the South African government has a certain kind of bias against high-end labor, or uh, towards high-end labor, against against artisanal and um, like labor-intensive labor. So they pay, on the one hand, they pay lip service to labor-intensive industry, and they keep saying they want to create more jobs. On the other hand... They, in, in their training, the, the development of their training and their, their kind of the way that they've been treating other similar kind of um, industries in South Africa, like the jewelry industry, for example, like they tend to always penalize people who don't have tertiary degrees, for example. So, for example, in the jewelry industry, you need a license to be a jeweler in South Africa. You can't just, you can't just, your, if your father's a jeweler, he can't just train you and you continue on with your little family business where the jewelers have been doing for millennia. Um, you know, you need to go to a university and get a, th get, get a degree. Otherwise you can't get this jewelry license, you know. So the, the, the government has consistently cracked down on, on, uh, on artisans or crack, cracked down on, on non-tertiary kind of educated people while paying lip service to creating jobs to labor-intensive industries. So there's this kind of like schizophrenia within the ruling party of South Africa itself in re regards to how they look at labor and how they look at business. Now, they must know where these factories are, just the same way that in the U.S., 
we know full well where the fields are that are that the lettuce is being picked with illegal labor. So all that the Immigration Customs Enforcement has to do is show up, make some arrests, shut down, put some fines, and you're up and running. Why hasn't the government just shut down these the, 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 these non-unionized, non-labor rights respecting factories that are that the Chinese are running? Um, they are going through a process, so they gave them they gave them a cut cut off time, in, you know, to kind of to to implement the the minimum wage, um, and then the entrepreneurs responded in a lot of interesting ways, like for example, closing down their factory and then opening it up in the same place but under a different name, which means that the, that the whole process had to start again. Um, there were a lot of kind of obstructionist, little obstructionist, pro, you know, processes, like, for example, leasing all your your um, your equipment out to someone else who then, you know, kind of is leasing it so it's not your equipment anymore, that kind of situation. You know, kind of, so there were a lot of, of, of little little hurdles kind of put up in, in you know, kind of in and, and slowing down the process. And now there's also, there's actually a lawsuit. So, so um, five of these companies actually now suing the Minister of Labour um, and, uh, you know, kind of, and, and saying that, you know, kind of that it's, it's going to destroy the, the rural economy, you know, kind of this in enforcing the minimum wage. How similar is this? And this is my last question on the subject before we move on. Uh, you, you remember about three or four months ago, there was this issue of, of the Chinese wanting to make taxis in South Africa and the union shut down that plant and basically said no taxis can be made here. How is that? Is this part of is, are these two isolated instances or is this basically the unions really just mounting on a fence against Chinese presence in South Africa? Is there any, any way to connect those dots? The unions are, you have to remember about South Africa and South Africa's rural party. The, the rural party is f formally affiliated with the unions, which means that the government is basically, has basically two heads. On the one hand, they represent capital, and on the other hand, they represent the unions, um, in the same party. So frequently it comes down to, to the, the unions kind of throwing down the gauntlet and the government having to cave or having to negotiate a way out, you know, kind of so, um, and part of, part of that is, is the unions, because the way that South Africa's uh, society is structured, you know, kind of very, very people high up in the unions and people high up in the government also have lots of business interests. So you frequently have a situation where people are both unionists and capital, you know, kind of mm -hmm. whether they both represent both sides of that coin. And then so, so it becomes, a, there's a lot of conflicts of interest here. You don't necessarily in South Africa have unions that are pure unions, you know, kind of where, where people, especially the people at the head of the union are, all, are only, a, you know, 100% unionist. Um, it, it becomes, it because there's a certain amount of protecting your own business or your own investments through union action going on as well. Well, we cannot understate the importance or overstate the importance of the the Sino-South African relationship. Uh, South Africa, of course, is a member of the BRICS Club. Uh, but more importantly, South Africa is also the one of the top three destinations of Chinese investment uh, in Africa. And so both on, I guess, on this official format through SOEs and then also in this informal sector, as we're seeing in these labor, uh, these labor disputes that are there. We, uh, I, I posted up on Facebook this week um, a, a, a pair of maps that highlighted the, the, the importance of, the, of what African countries to both the United States and to China and South Africa is in dark, dark blue, which highlights this, the importance for China. So this is a very, very important issue. And you can highlight it this week, actually. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister is making a trip uh, from Russia 
to uh, to go from Beijing to Moscow and Moscow to South Africa. So Yang Jiechi will be in, in South Africa this week. So again, reaffirming the importance of the South African relationship to, to China. Um, just want to do a quick little pit stop here to promote some of our different uh, products that we've got uh, at the China Africa projects and projects that we've got going. Facebook is just very exciting right now for us. Uh, we're closing in on 40,000 fans. Uh, thanks to uh, Ann Sherman, who's helping us manage the community out of Beijing. Um, but really, some great discussions are going on there. Cobus has been posting up like a storm the past week, which is fantastic. Uh, there's some fantastic discussions that are going on. And I've mentioned this in the past. What's so interesting about our Facebook community is is how young it is, that 70 to 80 percent is under the age of 34, but the majority between 18 and 24. So when you get involved in these conversations, you're really getting involved in conversations with students and young people largely in Africa. And I think that's really, uh, really fantastic. Also, if you've got an iPhone, uh, we've got an app. Just go to the uh, the Apple App Store and uh, look for the China Africa Project. You can listen to the podcast, read the blog, uh, follow our tweets, and you know, participate with us. And we're also in Google Play as well. Okay, so promotion over. Uh, we're going to end the, the show on a rather sad note today. Um, this is a post that was put up by our own Tendai Musakwa, uh, on on the China Africa Project website, what he did and what Tendai's been doing, which is just absolutely fantastic, is he's taking Chinese social media uh, posts on, on Sina, on Weibo, on Tencent, on QQ, and he's translating them. And it really opens up this window to this whole world that the outside, if you don't speak Chinese, you don't, you have no idea that it exists. So this is an invaluable service that he's providing us. Uh, Tendai is doing his PhD at Fudan Dashue, Fudan University in Shanghai. And uh, and he recently posted up on uh, last week, on Valentine's Day, no less, uh, a story about Togoli's man abandons a child he had with a Chinese woman, causing outrage among Chinese netizens. Um, and this is the story of Bobby. And Bobby is in Zhejiang province. Uh, and he's stuck. Uh, he, his father and his mother have abandoned him. Uh, he's living with somebody who goes by quotes, uh, grandmother, but basically that grandmother, whoever that person is, whether it really is a grandmother or not, um, has said that she cannot care for him for past primary school. And the government has basically come out with a very strong line and said, uh, without a huko, and a huko is a residence permit, um, he can't go to school, and he has to, in order for him to get his huko, he needs to have his mother and his father claim him, or else he will have to be adopted. Um, you, you know, Cobus, this really brings up the you know all of the the questions about racial identity in in China and the difficulties that he is having in part because if you see the picture of this of this beautiful little boy um he does not look chinese he most definitely looks black uh, and and not I won't even say uh, you know African in part because we're going to talk about the case of Lo Jing as well who is Af- who's half African American so but definitely does not look Chinese um, and this is a tragedy and this is part of the issue uh, that that I contend that China has got has got to become more accommodating to a multiracial uh, world that they that they're increasingly living in. Yeah, I think this is true for the whole of East Asia. You know, kind of. I think Japan has had lots of similar issues. Um, I think Japan is now is much further down the way, down the road, in developing you know coping mechanisms for these issues than China. Because in in Japan now, one out of out of ten marriages are are between Japanese people and foreigners. So they they have that they were forced to move quite quickly to develop ways to you know kind of um, citizenship mechanisms and so on to deal with with biracial people. Um, 
um, but yeah, you know, kind of, it's very interesting how, on the one hand, um, the it it there is some very positive and very sympathetic kind of um, uh, you know sounds coming out of Chinese social media, and some very condemnatory, quite racist views of him as well. And then on the ground, he's getting it sounds to me very very um, sweet and sympathetic treatment from actual people in Zhejiang. Um, you know, so people care for him, they bring him snacks, they help him. Um, and so on, and they're all worried about him. And people have ha- there have been offers to adopt him, but at the same time, you also find this like really like like quite startlingly racist kind of discussion of of him and whether he's Chinese or not, and and his his kind of parentage and so on 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 the Chinese internet. So it's a very complicated situation. You know the the story and 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 Motusi, I'm not sure if you re- if you if if you recall back in 2009. Uh, there was a, a show on Shanghai TV called uh, Go Oriental Angel, and basically it was one of these talent shows that they that the Chinese have had, like the idol shows. Uh, you know, you remember they had uh, Supergirl, Chao Jin Yuxing. They've had any number of these. And uh, back in 2009, there was a contestant by the name of Lo Jing. Now, Lo Jing is uh, is, is is again biracial. Uh, in this case, not Black African, but African American Chinese. The African American father uh, was gone. Had no idea, in fact that he fathered apparently this this girl um, and what was so interesting was how watching the show and seeing the contestant and seeing the host actually kind of interact with they didn't know what to do they didn't know how to refer to her so they use you know this this word that you always hear when there's a reference to black people in China chocolate which is chocolate uh, he called her a chocolate angel and a black pearl and then on top of it, the comments that came online, I mean, were just nasty, 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 nasty uh, towards her. That she was, you know, dirty and that she was, there was just this virulent racism. All the way to the point when after the show, about a year later, uh, people started interviewing. She says she wants to leave China and go to the United States to study. And she just was so scarred by the experience. And and so I, I see today reading the story about the case of Bobby, and you're you're somebody you know uh, you know you, who's kind of been in both worlds, in the African and the Chinese world. Do you see similarities with the difficulties that the Chinese are having in dealing with multiracial children, uh, whether it's Lo Jing or whether it's Bobby um, or whether it's white Asian and whatnot? And in and, and your own background, you come from a multiracial uh, Lesotho family. Um, and, in, you know, the racial identity in Africa seems to me as to be something equally as rigid as racial identity in China, where that if you're not black African, then you're white or you are something else. You are not one of us. Um, am I am I overreaching here or do you see the comparisons? Um, well, sure. I mean, I can appreciate that um, that these biracial kids in, in China um, probably also feel a sense of alienation. Um, I have to say that in in my case, uh, growing up in in Lesotho and South Africa, I mean Lesotho and South Africa, South Africa more so, are in spite of you know the history of apartheid, um, still very ethnically diverse and you know uh, mixed race marriages, even though they were outlawed, were not uh, a, a mixed race population. So people are less shocked in South Africa and in Lesotho. And you know, in the UK, at seeing mixed race children as they are in in China, because China is just has this kind of monolith of a population, the Han Chinese, and of course there's a lot of diversity within the Han Chinese, but ethnically they 
you know, they have this sense of unity, which also you could say exists in Japan with the Japanese population there. So yeah, but, I think it's more stark for um, mixed-race children going up in China because race there is so much more of an unresolved issue, whereas in Africa, race has been on the agenda for such a long time and has been dealt with, albeit in truly horrific ways. Um, people are more open to discussion, whereas in China, like, like you've mentioned, it is a new discussion. Um, but certainly in terms of my experience, I felt rate, I felt a lot more conscious of my ethnicity in China than I ever did in South Africa. Now, South Africa is a bad example, in part because, as you said, it is extremely diverse, and it's had multiracialism as part of its brutal, awful history for, for, for quite some time. Um, but yeah. let's step outside of South Africa, and let's move to the rest of, of the continent. And do you see, you know that same level of, of racial tolerance when it comes to, you know, Chinese uh, African families that are going to start emerging across the continent as, as, as the hundreds of thousands of Chinese settle there? I mean, do you, do you, do you really think that they're going to be more tolerant than the Chinese? Um, it's difficult to say. It's difficult to predict. But in my experience of mixed uh, Chinese and Basutu uh, families in Lesotho, I think there is a sense that they are integrated into both communities um and i my experience of mixed race children in the Sutu generally is that people just assume that they are that they are um basutu you know if they can speak the local language and they've lived there you know people don't have any problem just accepting that they are that they are local people um whereas in china i don't know i just feel like in china people are so much more um, conservative about race issues, yeah. and you know there'll be there will. I've asked uh, Chinese taxi drivers in Beijing why you know do you do you like black people, and the answer is always no. And you ask them why, and they don't they don't have a good reason. No. It's just a kind of cultural ideas about having dark skin that is some as being something unattractive. Whereas you know they the Chinese spend a fortune on skin whitening products to make themselves look more pale, which they consider to be more beautiful. So there's so many cultural issues tied up in it, and I think there just hasn't been as long a period of of dealing with these issues. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm where, where I'm I'm in Vietnam, and uh, what's interesting is that you see. You know the legacy of the of the Vietnam War, of course, is multiracial children of you know black American soldiers with Vietnamese women, uh, and those blacks, those mixed race kids of or now they're grown men, obviously or grown women, have had you know a lifetime of suffering and whatnot. So, Kobus, your your thought? Do you agree with uh, with Matusi in terms of that Africa uh, out you know ex South Africa? Um, is more tolerant and more uh, more capable of adapting to a multiracial, uh, in, let's say, in Chinese African children, biracial children, than what we expect in, in East Asia. I'm not sure. I think um, it seems to me that again, as you mentioned, South Africa is maybe is is a, is a different case, and I, I guess to a certain extent, Lesotho might be as well. I think it becomes more attitudes harden. The closer you, you know, the, 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 when you go north of South Africa, particularly, I think, I think you would know better than I would, but, but my, but my, um, perception was that in the DRC, for example, people tend to be, have very, quite rigid kind of racial ideas. Um, and people, you know, you're either black African or you're something else. And that, you're, that's you're something white. else. I mean, you're, you're white, basically, but, but white covers Asian and Indian and, right. and so on as well. 
And, you know, it seems to me that in the African case, it might have have kind of weird issues to do with class, you know, in the sense that, that racial minorities also tend to maybe be subtly in different classes and that in, in, you know, kind of it plays in a kind of opposite way in China, maybe. I don't know enough about it, but I think in both cases, what you, what you have a situation where... But I think both in China and in, and in Africa, you have a certain amount of, of, of self-narration or self-history where you are, um, you know, where, where people see themselves as, as having suffered racial discrimination. Um, you know, so obviously in Africa because of slavery, because of colonialism. In China, I think because of, of Japanese, um, you know, uh, occupation, you know, kind of a, a victimization by Britain maybe. Um, and when, when people, when that kind of self-definition becomes very, very solidified in a society, I think it becomes very difficult for people to think of themselves as being racist. They're always they're always the object of racial racist aggression, but they're never the the actors of racist aggression. It becomes it, and there's this kind of like psychic shift that needs to happen for people to actually think of themselves in that way. And I think both in Africa and in China, there's a lot of, of vested interests in not thinking of yourself in that way. Well, you know, kind of because it, it becomes a center of nationalism. No, and it's interesting. And in, in, in Martin Jack in When China Rules the World, he he kind of articulated this. Um, the best that I've seen it, actually. But there is a long tradition in China that dates back for thousands and thousands of years of Han racial supremacy. And it's not racial supremacy in the like, like the KKK and white racism in the U.S. It's that tied up in, in Han culture and the Han race is this idea that it is, of course, this is, you know, the ruler of the emperor of China was chosen by the, had the mandate of heaven and, and served in a country that was the center of the universe. And of course, the country that was the middle kingdom, that was the center of the universe, had the most sophisticated people and had the most, you know, pure race and whatnot. And, and so when you talk to, you know, people, we, and we've got into these debates on, on our Facebook page, and I, and I can never articulate it on Facebook in, in the right way. And it's not to say that, that the Chinese are racist, but it is to say that there is a strain within Chinese tradition and culture and the history of racial supremacy and the idea that the Han culture is um, is, is is supreme, is, 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 is better than other cultures uh, in that sense. One other kind of point just to follow up on, on Kobus and what you pointed out, which is that in a lot of African dialects, in my experiences in, in the DRC, in Lingala, the word was mundele. And Mundela meant basically other. Um, and, I, and I'm sure I'm going to be corrected by a, a native uh, Lingala speaker. But the idea was that you are not one of us, but you are other. Um, and so, so that was, you know, and they used it mostly for white people. But, of course, anybody who was not one of them would be Mundela. And so the idea, there was the separation between black African and everybody else. Uh, last question, yeah. though, and I'm going to put to Mutusi on this one, is that in Africa, the question of race becomes even more complicated because race is, is only one factor when you're talking about it. But, but tribe, I mean, as we see in Kenya, Kikuyu, Lua, you know, and, and so many of the, the tribal identities are as powerful as as any racial identity, when, when you throw into, into this the communities that have not been multiracial or multi-ethnic and you start injecting you know, Chinese cross-marriage and cross-relationships that come into this, how does that complicate the situation? Yeah, I think we're looking at a future of, of more complications in that area. Um, 
And I think I think it will raise a lot of questions about, you know, what does it mean to be from a particular tribe or nation in Africa? And also the question of Chineseness, which is being addressed now um, in part because of this case of Bobby and, you know, the case of Lo Jing and the case of Ding Hui, the volleyball player, mm-hmm. uh, who's also... Um, I think that I think those are very important questions. I don't really, I mean, I don't feel that in my life as a kind of uh, half British, half uh, half sort of Masutu, that I, you know, my existence has somehow really changed the debate about about race in Lesotho. Um, I think what's interesting, I think it does, I think it 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 makes Basutu people question, you know, what does it mean to be a Masutu? Um, and, you know, British people maybe ask themselves, what does it mean to be British? But I don't really, I, do, I think the case of Bobby has been, it's not so much, a, it, it, it's raised interesting questions about race, but the problem isn't necessarily race. The problem is more, um, you know, who's going to care for this child mm. and the question of documentation. Um, because you know the the fact that Bobby doesn't have a hukou is really a big a problem that affects thousands, millions of of that's rural right. Chinese. That's not just a form. That's just not because he's he's African uh, Chinese. Exactly, and um, and the race question, you, you know, is it, it's important because you know it's important to stamp out racism, and I find it a bit disturbing that you know they've really focused on the fact that. Um, these uh that these mixed race children are being are being cared for or kind of being dumped onto chinese families i mean you know that bobby's mother was chinese and she abandoned him and then the, and then her father abandoned and then his father abandoned him abandoned him afterwards so um you know it's it's this i the fact that often the chinese media have seized upon the fact that these abandoned children are being kind of left with Chinese grandmothers and it's they're just like a, a burden on them I think that is has undertones of racism in yeah. the sense that it's kind of showing it's kind of portraying Africans as um sort of a bit licentious and just coming to China and having fun and then leaving um so there's the question of race which is important but I think in Bobby's Bobby's case also throws up questions about documentation um and about citizens rights in China mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a very interesting case. We've got the full translation that Tendai Musakwa has done on, on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. There's also pictures of Bobby, who you will see is an absolutely adorable uh, young child. And uh, and so we hope to kind of bring some updates when the case of Bobby has been resolved. Uh, but it is it, it, there is a tragic story to this because you do feel like this poor child is, is kind of lost. As Motusi pointed out, uh, he is not alone. He is joined by hundreds of thousands of other migrant children in China who are equally uh, lost without their hukou. But um, in this particular case, it does raise the issue of, you know, multiracial identity in China. And there are some interesting parallels. They may be weak parallels, but there are interesting ideas of of race and identity uh, in Africa as well, you know, including South Africa, which continues, like the United States, to to struggle with what race means and how important it is in society and whatnot. So this will no doubt be a, a topic of conversation of ours coming up. So, uh, listen, we, this... Uh, Motusi, you've, you've broken a new record for us, by the way. This is actually the longest podcast that we've ever had. So uh, if, we, if we still have some listeners with us, <laughs> uh, tell us very quickly where people can find you. Uh, if, do you. Are you on Twitter? Are you on the web anywhere? Um, I have a blog called The East is Red. 
uh, on WordPress. Um, I think there have been some links to it already on uh, the China Africa project, so you can check that out. So it's East is Red, and the word Red is R E A D. Excellent. And so we'll go in. We'll post some of his work as well. On、uh, we've actually posted already a couple of pieces. On our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject, you can find us there. Join the almost forty thousand people from around the world who are following us and participating in the discussion.、Uh, and again, Cobus is very, very active on that page.、Uh, Cobus, if people, in addition to following you on Facebook, want to kind of find out what you're reading and what you're doing, where's the best place they can find you? I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. Wonderful, and you can find me. I'm at E O Lander, E O L A N D E R. I'm tweeting on China Africa relations almost every day,、uh, at least three to four times a week, and so、uh, you can find me there. And if you want to follow the show,、uh, listen. You can follow the show any number of different places. You can listen to us on Facebook. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud.、Uh, most importantly, we're on iTunes, and it would be fantastic if you subscribe. Leave a comment for us. Do you like it? Do you disagree with us? Do you, you know, anything you want? But it would be great if you could、uh, leave us a comment, give us a rating, because that helps us move up in、uh, in iTunes, and so that more people can see us. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and I'll be back again next week. Every Sunday we get together for this discussion, and until then, have a fantastic week. 